Our scripture reading for today is found in Mark 8, 27 to 38, and it's a scripture that is really packed with theology and conversations between Jesus and his disciples and the crowd that is surrounding them. And so let's read this together and then imagine how we might unpack it all. Jesus and his disciples went into the villages near Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? They told him, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. He asked them, And what about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. Jesus ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then Jesus began to teach his disciples. The human one must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the legal experts, and be killed. And then, after three days, rise from the dead. He said this plainly. But Peter took hold of Jesus and, scolding him, began to correct him. Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, then sternly corrected Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking God's thoughts, but human thoughts. After calling the crowd together with his disciples, Jesus said to them, All who want to come after me must say no to themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. All who want to save their lives will lose them. But all who lose their lives because of me and because of the good news will save them. Why would people gain the whole world but lose their lives? Now, friends, I grew up in a conservative church, and I can tell you I've heard a sermon or two preached on this, which usually turns into a pretty quick altar call. Let's look at it, though. Perhaps the first thing we should do, and you all know I always like to do this, is to... To put this in context, to keep us on our toes, referencing how and when the scripture was written and formed and and how it found its way to us now. Now, many of you know most biblical scholars believe that Mark was the first gospel written and then Matthew and Luke used a little bit of Mark stuff to write their own version. The writer of Mark is presumed to be John Mark, who wrote around 70 CE, which was when the temple was destroyed for the second time. So there was a lot of angst going on in the ancient community. Mark's incentive, if you will, in weaving the stories of the life and ministry of Jesus was to continue to bring about new development in the history of Israel, and not, as some assume, to begin a new religion in and of itself. It might be why in the gospel narrative, Jesus is portrayed in terms of popular Israelite prophets such as Moses and Elijah and Jeremiah. He wanted to get folks to sit on the edge of their seats and listen. So most of Mark's narrative contains various stories of Jesus' life with a lot of attention on miracles. Killings of leper and the blind, exorcisms of demons, and perhaps the real first instance of fast food, where we read of Jesus' miraculous feeding of 5,000 on one side of the lake and then another 4,000 on the other. And that was just men, we know, because women and children were not even counted in the ancient community. 
So in other words, Jesus found a quick way to feed a lot of people. But times have changed with fast food, haven't they? Because we read in Scripture that everyone got plenty to eat and was satisfied. And I don't know, but the more I'm going through drive throughs these days, I get home and nothing is in the bag like I ordered it to be. Another key component of Mark's narrative was Jesus calling the 12 disciples and then spending a lot of time teaching them about this new way. And a way which, quite frankly, went against the religious authorities. It went against tradition sometimes, and certainly it was at great odds with political powers. But in every case, when Jesus called one of these disciples, Mark is specific in saying in every case that they immediately followed him. Which we know means that they left everything, their work, their home, their families. They just laid the fishing rods down or whatever they were doing and immediately followed. So here we are in chapter 8 of Mark. And let's, let's picture ourselves in this story as we've been trying to do during our Lent series. Like the disciples then, we would be privy to both the private and the public teachings of Jesus. We would have watched his actions and discerned that indeed he not only talks the talk, friends, but he walks the walk because he truly lives this life of justice and peace, compassion and mercy in everything he says and does. He's willing to put his reputation on the line and to stand up to those who oppress others or who hang on to religious laws, even when it's obvious that those laws are not congruent with God's intentions for the world. So like the disciples, friends, if we were part of the story, we did witness those miracles. Miracles that we would have seen for ourselves. And we more than likely wouldn't have believed them if we hadn't seen them for ourselves. And the more we've heard and seen Jesus and walked with Him, well, the more we would be, would we not, sure of who he is and our decision to follow him. But wait. Right as we're getting comfortable with who Jesus is and who we are as his followers, Jesus throws a real curveball, or I think it's more safe to say that he throws us a sinker. Because what we read and what the disciples in the crowd heard was totally unexpected. And we can certainly understand how it could rain on the parade of God's witnesses. Let's look briefly at three key things Jesus said in our passage today. A passage which is known as the turning point of Mark's gospel. First, as Jesus and his disciples seemed to be nonchalantly making their journey towards Jerusalem, he asked them who people think he is, as if to say, you know... I've been doing a lot of really unusual things. I've been teaching and saying some things that folks aren't quite sure about. It must have been spurring on some talk around the, the folks. So what? What have you heard? Who do they say that I am? And he heard, of course, as we read the scripture, that some said, I think he's John the Baptist, and others, he's Elijah. And Jesus quickly turns the heat up on the disciples and us. And says, who do you think I am? I mean, after all, you've been hanging out with me day and night. You should have a pretty good idea. And then we're almost cheering, aren't we? When Peter steps up to the plate and proclaims, you are the Messiah. Yeah, 
Only did you notice that Jesus didn't like that response? And in fact, he tells the disciples, don't tell anyone about me. Does this seem strange to anyone other than me? That Jesus called these disciples to teach and to carry on his message and all of a sudden he says, Mm-mm, don't tell anyone about me. I think it's an odd response because you'd think Jesus would want the disciples to tell everyone about him and his message. After all, he did call them and he commissioned them to do the things that he could do. But here the directive of Jesus, don't tell. If we look a bit deeper, there might be some explanation for this response. But before I get ahead of myself, let's look at the second key thing we find. After Jesus gives him this odd command to not tell anyone who he is, he then begins to teach them a deeper lesson of who he is. For keep in mind, these disciples had witnessed his short ministry, and they were in awe of him. From a historical perspective of those who were once again being persecuted by the Roman political leaders, these disciples had to be thinking, this is the one. This is him. Make no mistake about it. This is the one who will restore us again and no longer will temples be destroyed and we be oppressed. Remember now, Messiah is what Peter said, which in Greek means one anointed by God. And in common ancient thought, Messiah was understood to be the one who would conquer. But instead of describing how wonderful life is getting ready to be, and how Jesus will conquer the Romans and restore God's people, Jesus tells the disciples, I'm going to undergo great suffering. I'm going to be rejected and killed, and then rise again after three days. This was not the idea the disciples had about their Messiah. I mean, the suffering, rejected, killed part. They seem to have glossed right over the rise again after three days part. But that's another sermon. So Peter, once again being the mouthpiece of the disciples, takes Jesus aside. And our scripture interpretation says that Peter scolded Jesus. What? That took some guts, didn't it? Or some ill-advised judgment. Perhaps he was saying, Jesus, don't, don't do this. Don't say this. And then did we note Jesus' response to Peter this time? Get thee behind me, Satan. For you're setting your mind on human things, not on things of God. Maybe here's the key. A key to why Jesus told them, don't tell anyone about me. Because Jesus' friends seemed to know that the disciples still hadn't got it. They hadn't got the full understanding of who Jesus was. Even though they had this personal relationship. I get to thinking that maybe this instruction to the disciples to not tell was indicative of how all of us come to God in our own time. For it might be said that true discipleship can't be forced or coerced. Following the call of God is not simply a sprint 
fueled by emotion or desperate attempts to become removed from bad times or difficult life circumstances. Rather, perhaps, our relationship with God builds on this foundation that on our journey, we will experience some miracles and also some heartaches, just as Jesus did. But we will never, ever be outside God's love and God's grace, ever. Now, it's important to understand, at the time of Mark's writing, no one, at least of all the disciples, expected a suffering, dying Messiah. They didn't want to hear this, which might be why right before our passage today, we read about the healing of the blind man. So we recall in that story, right before the one we read together, so just in Mark 8, verses 22 to 26, Jesus lays his hand on the blind man not once, but twice. Because after the first time, although the man's vision is improved, he doesn't profess full sight. It's only after the second time that Jesus lays his hands on his eyes that the sight is fully restored. Ah, like the blind man. Unless we and the disciples understand the full spectrum of Jesus' life and ministry, we can't accept the true call of discipleship. You know why? Because we all can be blind. We can be blinded by our own agendas, by our misconceptions, and by our own self-interest and intentions. And I hope there's some amens from the perspective that there are a ton of preachers out there whose actions and words sure don't seem to me like they have a real understanding of who God is and what God does and doesn't do. That's a sermon for another day too, I guess. When the disciples initially refused to believe that Jesus would indeed suffer, They were being resistant to God's plan. And that's why Jesus accused them of setting their mind on human things. Friends, this story invites us to continue to seek clarity and continue to grow in our relationship with God, to seek the hands of God on our heart, our souls, and our minds over and over again, recognizing that with each new touch, we see more clearly who God is and who we are and what God's purpose might be for our life. Well, we come to the third part of our passage today, one that leads us right from that clear vision to action. And we should note that Mark begins this part of the passage by including the crowd. Jesus calls the crowd... With his disciples. In this way, once again, we see this inclusiveness and expectation of all. For we're all included. We're all welcome. And we're all expected to provide Christ-like action in our world. So in this closing section, Jesus calls the disciples and the crowd and us to deny themselves and to take up their cross and follow him. And he warns what happens if someone tries to gain the world and forfeit their very lives. 
Now, we could spend a month just on this sentence because there are so many possibilities for how one might interpret it. Here's how I interpret it. It can be a very dangerous thing to believe what the world tells us about who we are. Whether what we hear is, you are awesome, or you are not worthy. Isn't it interesting how societies label or give power, prestige, privilege to some and ignore the needs of others? And often if we look around in this compassionate week we're leaning into, the very ones looking like God and serving God in the trenches, doing the work of justice and peace and hope to the least among us, are the ones that are dirty and sweaty and smelly, unknown and never heard about. So might it be possible that this lose-your-life language calls us to lose what others think about us. And in fact, perhaps the most challenging is to lose the image we have of ourselves. Instead, we can recognize that every single one of us are created uniquely with abilities and circumstances that when fully yoked with God's plan for our lives, results in our living the fullness of our identity, bestowed to us by our Creator. Instead of working so darn hard to live up to what the world might expect of us and how the world has defined us, God calls us to live a life in the model of Jesus, who did not seek fame or fortune or popularity, but put it all on the line to be authentic in his relationship to God, authentic to who he was, and to those he lived among. Sometimes this recognition of who we are created to be is difficult to discern, especially when the vision can become clouded by pain, disappointment, difficult times, and what others think. Just as Mark gave us the example of two touches of Jesus to the blind man's eyes, we also find in this passage three separate episodes of Jesus teaching the disciples about what it means to be in relationship with God. That sometimes it takes perseverance to overcome the preconceived ideas or spoon-fed theology about who God is and how God feels about us and what we do. Throughout Scripture, God's found in uncertainty and danger and suffering, not just in triumph and miracles. You know, friends, when I've read this Scripture about losing life, I can tell you a personal story a story that for the first 28 years of my life, I felt trapped, wound up, because I was not living to be who I really was. When I came out at the age of 28, 
and said to my family, my church, and anyone else who wanted to listen, I'm gay. This is who I am. This is how I'm going to live. And no matter the cost, it will be what it will be. Was there pain? You betcha. Was there rejection? Oh, yeah. Is there still? Yeah. But I got to tell you, you lose your life when you live your life for what others think you ought to be. Taking up the cross for me is the cross of authenticity. The cross of courage. The cross of confidence and of assurance. That the things of the world, the opinions of others might take you down. You may have suffering and rejection, but you're going to rise again. You're going to rise again. And even when you don't feel the love, you can't see God, God may seem silent. God is always with us. I believe in the sun when it's not shining, in love when I don't feel it, in God when God seems silent. May we know who God is and seek to know who God is, who we are, and brothers and sisters, whose we are. Amen. Thanks for joining us for the Bluegrass United Church of Christ podcast. We'd love to have you join us for a service sometime. We meet on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at 500 Don Anna Drive in Lexington, Kentucky. You can find us online at bluegrasschurch.org.